0: In the in the world of graphite, our rods are slower than most because of that progressive action, and so I think in that world they're very different. But I think you know bamboo has more of an organic feel to it, and I think it's hard not to it's hard to fish bamboo and not feel kind of a connection to the history of fly fishing. You know, we all grew up, grew up reading about chalk streams in England, and you know all this kind of history to it.
1: That was Joe Dalb describing one of the benefits of their Tom Morgan rods. This is episode 161 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please subscribe to the show and share it with one other person. Uh, if you get a moment today, that would be amazing, and I want to thank you in advance. The owners of Tom Morgan Rodsmith are here today to share the Tom Morgan story and talk rod building. Joel Daub and Matt Barber share some tips on building a great rod. We hear about how you can stop by uh, their shop for some tips and discuss where they uh, might be going next with Trout Bay. This one's a good one, and it's been a little uh, time coming for sure, so excited to share um, this episode. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors, SoFly Gear, headed up by 17-year-old James Carlin of the U.S. Youth Fly Fishing Team, has a buttery soft quick-drying apparel line that I've been loving. Head over to wetflyswing.com SoFly and support James and the podcast, the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has an exceptional fall edition that's out right now. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash F-T-J to support the great work Craig and the gang have created just for you. So uh, again, that's uh, wetflyswing.com slash F-T-J and, uh, and wetflyswing.com slash S-O-F-L-Y for SoFly. Uh, be great if you can do that. That would help, uh, help us uh, assure we keep... Pumping out uh, plenty of content. Without further ado, here is Matt and Joel from TomMorganRodSmiths.com. How's it going, guys? Great. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. It's uh, it's great to have you on here. Uh, we your name, the Tom Morgan name. I uh, you know I think. I've heard about it. Obviously, I think maybe not everybody has learned about it. So we're going to dig into a little bit of the background there on Tom Morgan and how it all came to be, and how it's known as one of the one of the great you know fly rod companies out there. But maybe before we uh, get started, can you guys just talk each kind of briefly about how you got into fly fishing?
2: Sure. Uh, this is Matt. Um, I started as a young kid. I grew up back on the East Coast, and my my great grandfather had a place up in the Berkshires of Massachusetts, and. I started throwing poppers for largemouth bass at a really young age uh, with an old beater fiberglass rod. And uh, obviously if you catch a largemouth bass on a popper, you're, you're pretty much done from there, it's awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, similar, I, I grew up uh, west of Denver um, on a little pond kind of in what is now sort of suburban Denver, um, just fishing for bluegills and, and bass and got my first fly rod when I was about five and kind of hiked around the, the foothills of Denver fishing as a kid. I um, got pretty pretty addicted to it. My grandpa was a fisherman. My my parents were not, so my dad would just drive into streams and take a nap in the car while I fished. But was lucky to have some early mentors and my grandfather that kind of got me into it and kept me
1: going. That's cool. Yeah, uh, the the stories are awesome, you know. I mean, it's it, it, some guys you know get started as a young, like you guys. Some start older. One of the interesting things I can't remember who I was talking about talking to, but we were talking about Tenkara, and it it was interesting because. Oh, I know who it was. It was George Daniel, who I had on a while back. And I was re listening to that episode I had with him. Um, and he mentioned that he thought Tenkara was a great way, you know, to get his kids into fly fishing. And I'm just curious, what, what's your guys' take on the Tenkara? And obviously, I know I don't think you guys make Tenkara rods, but do you guys have a perspective on that?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I haven't personally fished a lot of Tenkara, but uh, I, I do have a six year old. And starting young, I mean, I essentially tighten down the drag give him as much line as i think he can't get in trouble with and uh he's pretty much fishing it like a 10 car rod so i for sure see that that simplifying it um you know there's a lot of appeal to that yeah it's funny i mean i
0: I think i grew up fishing a 13-foot bamboo pole with just a length of string tied to the end of it um, for bluegills it's funny We, we had some conversations with tom about it and, uh, I think Tom was, uh, maybe not the biggest fan of Tenkara. you know, we're such steep traditionalists because of what we learned from Tom and his wife, Jerry and, yeah. and the team people here that make rods. I think, you know, we kind of think of it as anathema, but I think that's right. I think from a beginning standpoint, the less you have to manage from a line reel setup standpoint, the easier it is to kind of focus on fishing the fly and actually, you know, setting the hook and, and figure out where trout live and, and, and focusing your efforts there. So I think it's actually really useful in that regard for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I can't remember if you guys, I think you did mention uh, some similarities between, you know, your company and Patagonia on on some of those. And Patagonia actually had, they had a line of uh, Tenkara for a while. um, So that's kind of interesting. And I haven't actually dug into the Tenkara yet either. I think I will eventually because, you know, I think it'd be fun to check it out. But, you know, the steelhead thing is something that obviously is a big focus, you know, on this podcast. Now, you guys haven't got into the steelhead. I think is your heaviest rod you have is a seven weight now? Yes, yeah, so that's some ways
0: new. And so I think, you know, we get approached by people from from time to time about saltwater and and steelhead and, and spay fishing. And I think the one thing that we kind of learned from Tom is that you pick what you do um, and, and you just focus on really trying to do that as well as you possibly can. And so, you know, for Tom and from his lineage, he was a fishing guide in Montana, you know, and so our rods really are based on his experience fishing with clients. What they had a hard time doing was Putting flies on a dinner plate to visible rising fish, and so our action, really everything we do, is based on trout fishing in Montana. You know, and I think that it's pretty easy if you're a big company to, to try to make a, you know a solution for everything that's out there. And we within our within our lines and uh, and try to focus on making the very best trout rods we can, and and not keep our focus or let our focus broaden too much past that.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So, what's that seven weight like? Is that a? I mean, because you can use. I mean, I guess that's more of a set for heavier streamers and things like that.
0: Yeah, it's funny, you know. So Tom, um, Tom did a, a fair amount of steel water fishing, um, uh, steelhead, me, steelhead, steelhead fishing, still had, excuse me, still had fishing in Idaho as as a younger man, and so he actually used some fiberglass rods that we make eight weight single hand fiberglass rods. Um, and so certainly, you know, that was back kind of before the spay revolution hit, you know, in the '70s, '60s, and '70s out there. But um, the seven weight we actually make in two different versions. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much, but we, in the process of prototyping yeah. that rod, we found two different blanks that we really liked. One that's stiffer and we kind of consider it to be more of a kind of light saltwater bonefish kind of rod. And then one that's a little softer, that's more of a progressive action trout rod. Um, so, you know, the softer one we like a lot for streamer fishing for trout here in Montana, um, you know, sink tip lines. And then the stiffer rod would be more your full sink tip or even, you know, light steelhead, light bonefish, light saltwater kind uh, of stuff. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. As I say, cause I think that seven weight would probably work great for summer steelhead, mm-hmm. especially, you know, something a little bit lighter, not going for the monster, mm-hmm. the bigger fish. Um, okay. And so and how'd you guys, uh, I mean, Massachusetts and Denver, how'd you guys uh, meet and, and come into, uh, where you at now?
2: Well, yeah, I, uh, I lived in Denver for about 20 years and, and Joel obviously grew up there and we met in Denver. Um, so, uh, fish, um, Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, um, and and just fished a ton together. And uh, both of us were probably in similar places in our work life, you know, working our butts off, but needing a change, needing something with a little more substance and uh, um, started talking with Tom and his wife, Jerry, about the company and they had it up for sale. Uh, So Joel and I, you know, kind of, I don't know if we were serious at first, we started taking a look at it and the more uh you know we fell in love with the company they started courting us and we were courting them and kind of going back and forth and, and uh we we moved our families up to bozeman and uh, been here for about three years
0: no kidding yeah. yeah kind of admitted midlife crisis both had young sons and we're trying to figure out a way to have a life where we could be outside more and not be on planes and not be working late and be home for dinner. And yeah. Bozeman is a pretty special place if you've ever been out here. Um, you know, the university's here, so the town is a pretty lively place. And the skiing and the fishing and the hunting access is pretty unbelievable. You know, and it's a it's a small town, but it has a great airport. And uh, it just checked a lot of the boxes for us. And then, of course, you know, we'll talk more about it, but you go and meet somebody like Tom Morgan and, and start talking to him about what he does and, and how he does it and hearing stories. And it's, it's pretty alluring um, as a place to live and work.
1: Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, let's get into that. So Tom Morgan, I mean, I've I read some some of the stuff on Tom. I mean, I didn't know the background. Like I said, the only thing I knew about Tom Morgan, it's pretty cool. It shows you a lot about the company. Is that I knew they were one of the best, you know, the rod company, rod makers in in the world, pretty much. And but other than that, I didn't know much. And as I dug into the story, yeah, maybe you can just talk about that because that whole thing, how he was had you know MS and basically, I think for seventeen years. Uh, you know, transitioned uh, to where he didn't build any of the rods. Can you can you talk about how a little bit about the whole Tom Morgan story, where he came from, how he got into I think Winston and then into Tom Morgan? Sure. So
2: Tom grew up in Ennis as a, as a kid, and um, his parents owned the L Western Motel, and he started guiding on Odell Creek and on the Madison and the Ruby and all around there, and learned those waters and uh, and really learned how to teach people how to fish by watching his clients and watching what they needed. Um, he went on to own uh, a fly shop in Ennis for, for a bit and uh, ran that for a while. And uh, in the early 70s, 1971, I believe, um, Winston was up for sale. And uh, Tom purchased Winston in San Francisco. Um, and we, we like to joke because people say, did you guys build rods before you owned the company? and we asked Tom that question. We said, Nope, Tom, we're not professional rod builders. You know, I don't know about buying this company. He said, don't worry. I bought Winston. I'd never built a rod in my life, you know? And so, um, so Tom uh, had Winston in uh, in uh, San Francisco for two years uh, and then moved it back to twin bridges uh, obviously where it's still located today and ran it until the early nineties. So a lot of those really, Famous green sticks that came out of Winston were were designed by Tom and and the team there and um and he worked side by side with the net and Glen Brackett and uh, just you know really a lot of that storied history of of where Winston came from today uh, and in the early 90s he sold it to David Andachi uh, who still currently owns Winston.
0: So it's it's
2: an interesting story. I think. You're right there's a
0: lot of layers to it so there's the kind of the aspect of Tom as the fishing guide and the fisherman which I think really informed a lot of the choices he made when he started designing rods and I think it's always interesting we tell people this and I, I love the example of it you know there are different rod companies out there and I think it's always useful when you really get into it to think about the rod designers and the people that started those companies and where they come from you know and some people are, are more tournament casters and they have a different focus when they design a rod as opposed to somebody that's a fishing guide um, who really sees the challenges of fishing and, and design a rod with that in mind and I think you know, your background and your history and and your your knowledge base really informs the choices you make. And and so I think here at at Tom Morgan, we talk about it a lot. We make rods that are meant to be fished um, because they're designed to challenge to handle the challenges of fishing, especially the way we fish here in Montana. Um, And that's why the design the rods move the way they do, they flex the way they do and and they're built the way they are. And that's just, you know, Tom's history and background that really created that focus um, and was most important to him. So we talk a lot about, you know, feel um, and and uh, loading the rods and protecting the tippet and how you fight fish and you know um, all that kind of stuff a lot more than we talk about you know butt power or casting distance or things like that because they seem less important when you're actually fishing here um, not that those aren't important things in different environments you know if you're in Florida you got to have ability to you know to cast you know 80 90 feet with with one back back cast so you know just different environments and i think that that's a really interesting thing to think about and we're lucky that way because we don't make a lot of our rods so we get to talk to people about how they fish and where they fish and it's not that each action is customized for the client but we like to think that each rod choice or or the model they choose is customized for where they are and how they fish
2: yeah so after I'll, i'll just give you a little bit of a run up there so after uh selling Winston, Tom and his wife, Jerry, uh, he met his wife, Jerry, um, were, were living right outside of Bozeman, uh, and Tom developed MS and it was a pretty rapid progression that he went, um, to quadriplegic, couldn't, uh, couldn't use his hands or feet. So there's I don't know if it's a misconception, but uh, at Tom Morgan Rodsmith, Tom has never built one of the rods that uh, that we sell um, because he, he was paralyzed. So he taught his wife, Jerry, how to uh, build rods. She is not a fisherman, had never built rods before. Um, and he taught her all of the individual steps. And one of the things while Tom was at Winston is he always wanted to make a rod and not worry about you know the the price as it related to wholesale rods and then the markups and things he wanted to make what he thought of as close to perfect of a rod as you could have so it meant the nicest cork the the you know really special burls of wood agate stripping guides nickel silver hardware custom engraved for him um and he didn't want to be constrained by you know trying to turn out uh thousands of rods a year to fly shops. so He'd always had this dream of a small custom shop. And then when he was faced with the paralysis, it it became a reality that they needed to find um, work to do for the two of them. So they started Tom Morgan Rodsmiths in the early nineties as, as a custom rod shop. Um, And we currently make uh, bamboo graphite and fiberglass rods in a variety of two through eight weight, depending upon the material.
0: It's interesting though. I think that, um, I think that, you know, one of the things that Tom, I think is known for maybe within the industry more so than without it is I think his kind of obsession with quality. And I, I really don't know where that came from. I don't know if he was always that way or if rod building kind of created that within him. Um, but he he had kind of a, a philosophy on quality that I think is is the hardest thing about building rods the way we do, because um, I think he wanted every single step to be performed at the highest level of quality to, to the point where you get maybe that the, the sum is greater than the, the whole of the parts. You know what i mean like if you skip anywhere along the line it makes a difference in the final product and i think tom was kind of known in the industry especially when he bought winston of saying you know these rods could be much nicer than they are and much higher quality and so i think that was kind of a, a drive for him throughout his life is to figure out how can we make this the very very best and i think in a production environment as matt alluded to he found that there were limitations there um, when it comes to you know the, the the time you can spend on a rod the materials you can choose um, given the margin and the volume requirements um, and I think part of what what drove him in his sort of semi-retirement to build a custom shop was that idea that maybe he could try to build the perfect rod. I don't think that the perfect rod exists yet. You know, it's kind of one of those things that's more um, more of an aspirational goal than a real goal, but it pushes you to make everything as good as you possibly can. Um, and I think for Tom, that was kind of his 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 journey, you know, and, and it's interesting. The story has so many layers to it. It's not only, you know, Tom, the rod designer, it's, Tom, the husband and partner to his wife Cherry, and how that translated into what they did and how they did things, and and as he became more physically infirm, how his mental outlook on designing and exploring materials and writing about rod design and things like that increased as he was physically able to do less and less and less. Um, it's a remarkable story of a man and a husband and a rod designer, kind of all wrapped up into one.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the story going back, you know, again when he. Transition from Winston to Tom Morgan. So did you and he basically you said he didn't build any rods for Tom Morgan from from the start or was that or did he build some and then transition in in as the as the MS came on? No,
2: they I mean, I think the formation of Tom Morgan Rodsmiths was always an idea that he had, but it was necessitated by uh, his illness. So. Um, I I think they created it in a way to work from their home to stay doing something that they were that he was passionate about uh, to create some income. Um, So it it really was born out of necessity. Um, But he certainly, you know, as far as designing went, though, I mean, he he designed every single rod that we have. And he built what he learned to do was to rely on others and, and create a really collaborative process. So for prototyping, he would have some trusted casters come in and cast in the front driveway and he would sit in his chair and watch how the rod flexed and get their feedback. And they knew the, the action that he was after. And then he would go back to the spreadsheets and using you know, voice to text, make alterations to the spreadsheets and the patterns and then have you know new prototypes rolled. and then. Go back at it again. So he wasn't physically casting them, but these are all of of Tom's designs and the way that he thought trout rods should behave.
1: Right. Wow. That yeah, that is pretty amazing. And I was thinking about it earlier, the way it it came together. So basically, you know, with you guys now, I mean, you've taken over this company. I mean, how do you how do you kind of live up to that? expectation. Do you, do you see that as a big challenge for you guys and people I'm sure from the outside are like, well, Tom Morgan's gone. How, you know, and I, and I compare it to kind of almost the Steve Jobs thing, right? Apple, it was all about this guy, Steve Jobs, he disappears. You wonder how does Apple make it? But how, how would you guys, how do you guys do yeah, it? Yeah, well, first of all, I think our market cap's a
0: little lower than Apple. so Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, in some ways, I think we were helped by the fact that we'd never built rods before. So we joke, you know, any habits we have, either bad or good, are Tom and Jerry's habits. (laughs) So we don't really know a different way to do it. So we didn't have to overcome any bad habits or or any of the shortcuts or or any of the other things we might've had to, hadn't been really seasoned rod builders. But I think you're right. We spent a lot of time the first year or two years even kind of answering those questions. And I think people wanted to see if the quality changed or if the product changed or, you know, we were really lucky that we were able to keep almost all the same vendors who supply our parts that Tom had over time curated into a list of really superlative suppliers. Uh, we were able to keep the same team of people that had worked with Tom for so many years, um, and learn from them, um, kind of on a daily basis. And, and I think that they were pretty good about, you know, not letting us go, so to speak. They didn't really let us leave the house, uh, and the shop that was in their house until they felt comfortable. We were making rods that were at or above the quality they had made them at. Um, so sometimes I think we joke, I, you know, I think we take it pretty seriously and maybe hold ourselves even to a more impossible standard because we don't know, um, any other way to do
1: it. Gotcha. How, how do you guys stay, at, I mean, you're at this level, I think it's something, you know, if somebody puts an order in with you guys, it takes, depending on the rod, you know, a good, you know, six months or so, right, it's in that range. How do you guys, I mean, do you talk about the potential of increasing production? I mean, the, this whole scaling thing, right, when you think of companies, the the scaling provi- uh, you know process, you know, do you guys just avoid that? Or how, how do you, you know, what, what are your plans for the long term with this? So,
2: you know, I think that, We asked Tom that question and said, "Where's how big can this go?" And and he said, "I can't give you a number, but as you're building the rods, if you are finding temptation to cut corners or order inferior supplies, or you find the quality of the work going down, then you've reached that that place. So we're really not looking to ramp up into you know massive production numbers and supply every fly shop in America with one of our rods. It just." it doesn't make sense from, from the cost of materials and labor and it, and it's just not our company is is founded. Um, you know, so what we're doing is we're growing gradually, you know, we're, we're making more rods this year than we did last year and more rods last year than the year before that. Uh, but we're, we're constantly keeping an eye on, are, are we stretching things? Is quality, you know, suffering? And and right now we're really happy that it's not, we, we know that we have the ability to make, some more rods in 2020 than we made this year, but we're not trying to, you know, exponentially blow that up.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the answer is long-term. I don't think we ever see this being a really big company. It'll always be pretty small, might be a little bigger than it is now. And we might grow really slowly, but I think for us, the most important thing is to make sure we maintain that, that story and that heritage and, and the way that Tom built rods. So I don't think that can ever really be done on a mass scale. Um, we still want to have contact with our customers and, and be able to make choices that are appropriate for them and have their feedback when we build rods.
1: That's right. Yeah. Cause you, you guys know every customer, right? By kind of a first name basis and the rods are in there, you're working on them. And, and what is it like when you, you know, if you take can you take, uh, you know, take us to your, you know, the, the factory floor. <laughs> I mean, what's it like when you open that door and, and you look at you guys, what do we, what would we see if we walked in there today?
2: Yeah. So we're, we're sitting here today. It's not, uh, not, not this fancy factory. It's, uh, it's, you know, uh, it's a great spot here in Bozeman, um, and we do it all in here. It's everything from the office to the uh, bamboo production to every step of the build process is all happening here under one roof. Um, there's five of us that, that work in the shop. Uh, and we really made it a focus to all be cross trained so that no one person is responsible for just one step of the process so that you know we can kind of keep from getting bored and bounce in and out of, of doing the work we do um, but the process is you know for example yesterday we, we took some orders on rods and and we're working with that customer sold a couple eight foot four weights um and they were you know we were talking about handle shape and handle length and what color the blank will be because we we do it either a red or a clear coat um we talk about species of wood for the for the real seat hardware or for the real seat and then and then the type of hardware um what kind of inscription our calligrapher is going to do so there's a really personalized approach to designing that rod and even backing up and getting to the specific length and weight We're talking, these were actually a couple of customers from Japan that I took out for a day of fishing this summer, and they tried a bunch of different rods and landed on the one that they wanted for the type of fishing that they do. So, you know, we're really, uh, really involved talking with our customers. Luckily, we've fished a lot of rivers and know, for the most part, where they're fishing and type of fishing they're doing. Um, So it's a really personalized process. Yeah, the
0: Japanese rods are interesting because... They fish for a, a small trout there called a the shaku, I think it is, and they wanted a. We do a twenty-inch fish mark on a lot of our, almost all of our rods. Oh yeah. They wanted a three hundred millimeter fish mark, which is like like eleven and five eighths inches or something like that. Oh there so, you go. yeah. So yeah, so we figure out a way to do a mark that's for there for that type of little fish that lives in the mountains of Japan. I guess that's the that's the goal is a three hundred millimeter fish. So yeah, we figure out a way to do that. But I would say on any given day, you're going to find Matt and I either on the phones. Either returning messages, doing sales, or on some part of the build process—you know, coating rods, building handles, you know, shaping bamboo—we uh, kind of do all rod building stuff and 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 uh, more ownership duties, what you might think of. Um, and everybody kind of cross trains, as Matt says, it's funny to think of it as a factory. It's really, we call it a shop. Oh, yeah. It's funny that everything does come out of here and we try to do as much as we can here. And then obviously from a vendor standpoint, we start looking for vendors in Montana and then we look in the West and then we kind of look nationwide, but we really work hard to make sure all of our stuff comes from America.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and is the other and now the five people. So now is Jerry still uh, building rods?
2: She's not. Uh, she she's happily pursuing her art, which is really was her passion before building rods, and, and continues to be. Uh, but I was just on the phone with her yesterday, asking her a question about uh, one of the vendors and, and and the manufacturing process for one of our parts. So um, she's still very much in a consulting role. Comes by the shop when she's in town, getting groceries and things, and uh, helps us out. But as far as day-to-day production goes, um, as Joel talked about earlier, they really had this philosophy of gradual release where they taught us each step until we could do it as well as she was. And then when we could master that step, then we stepped into that step and she continued the other parts of the build. And it wasn't until uh, she and Tom were able to look at a rod and say that they couldn't tell if, if Jerry had built it or if we had built it that they let us fly and move out of their home shop.
1: Like I said, the, the stories, there are more of the deep deeper dive. I'll, I'll put a couple of links. But as far as the building of the rod, can you just walk us through, you know, maybe a few of the, you know, kind of some tips? You know, and I've, I'm going into right now, I'm starting to build a couple rods that are, you know, on the side. I'm, you know, doing a little process here. And it's interesting because I haven't built a rod in probably 20, 20 years right. or more. Yeah. In, you know, and it, it's still a little bit of a, you know, there's a little bit of a struggle on some of the things, but can you give me, you know, maybe just some tips on how, if, if somebody was building a rod, how they might, you know, how you guys started off and go through that process really quick. Sure.
2: Um, you know, I, I'll jump into some of those tips in a second, but one thing I want to back up, Tom was a huge um, helper of anybody that reached out to him. People always said they were surprised about how much information he offered and that he didn't keep a lot of his tips and tricks close to the vest. So, um, you know, people would write to him and say, how did you do this? Whether it was a bamboo build or a graphite build. And he happily you know, talked about dimensions and techniques and things. And uh, so we've tried to keep that alive. One of the things that we started uh, about a year and a half ago was teaching bamboo rod building classes, where folks come out to the shop and uh, in groups of uh, max size of about four people. They'll spend a week in our shop and go from calm to rod and use one of our tapers and, and end up with a you know fishable rod by the end of the week. So we, we both are building custom rods for customers, but also really uh, pursuing the education around building. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, I think one of the biggest things that stands out in my mind, Tom, there's a lot of sayings that we have around the shop that Tom um, when he talked about building and one that sticks in my mind is he used to say you know don't hold on to a mistake just because it took you a long time to make it um, and in rod building for me that's especially true if if i've been working on a handle and i glued up the cork and it's on the blank and i'm working on it and i look at it and it's just proportionately not right and it's, it's now too small um, you know i think there's a tendency to say man it, this took a lot of hours it's going to be a huge pain to cut it off and start over and so one of the things i really try to internalize is that if it you know if it's not done right it's not worth doing so you know we we've been known to to set ourselves back a couple of days on a build of a rod or even more just correct something that probably the the customer wouldn't even notice but uh, it's important for us to to chase that yeah. And we talk about that quite a bit. There's just a rod we just did that um,
0: it's not even that the customer would notice the defect, but if you know about it, Tom kind of taught that, it, it, you know, if we see it under magnification, it might be very hard for somebody else to find it. But if we know it's not right, it's kind of that, you know, you have to be true to that, to that feeling, you know, true to that knowledge. And, and so we, you know, oftentimes have to disappoint customers by saying this rod's not right. You know we're gonna to have to start it over but that's kind of what we do you know we know that's 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 our niche is to make sure every rod's as perfect as it can be before it leaves the door
1: yeah and do you guys do mostly i mean are you doing four piece uh, i mean do you do two pieces what do you guys mix things up there
2: i think one of the unique things is uh the way tom designed the blanks is that they start out Uh, And and they can be built as I I fish a a two piece nine foot six weight here in Montana when I'm out, you know, on some of the bigger rivers. And I don't know a lot of companies making a a two piece nine foot rod, but since we're lucky not to have to get on the airplane, uh, we prefer two piece when we don't have to fly, but certainly recognize that that's not the reality. In the way most of the rods today are are sold, so uh, we we can make them in two or four piece.
0: Yeah, we sell a lot of two piece rods for people here in Montana or have places here, and
2: they're just it's it's just
0: a sweeter rod. You have to do more if you're going to put you know two extra joints in a rod. It, it changes the blank more.
1: Does it change? Uh, I mean, the action considerably, just your two fe- your two piece versus the four piece. I
2: think in our rods, you know, if you're fishing a rod that's a really stiff rod through the butt and for most of it out to a tip flex. You don't notice it as much, but Tom's design philosophy was to start with the finest tip possible and then have an even rate of progression all the way back to the handle. So when we're prototyping a rod, even up in like a six weight, if it doesn't load deeply from the tip to the handle, um, you know, and and you can't feel it load at 25 feet, uh, then it's not one of our rods. So for us with a rod designed to bend like that and to, to fish like that, then two more ferals. Is noticeable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an okay. interesting point, Matt Max. About when we when we prototype rods, one of the very first things we ask, when we ask our test casters, is to start casting at twenty five feet. You know, don't pull out to fifty or sixty or seventy feet to get the rod to line yeah. up. We want to feel that rod close because uh, so much of, of your fishing is twenty five to forty feet for trout. You know, you're not. It's not really a distance game consistently. So um, we want to make sure that that those rods are are responsive and, and have feel close. And we know they're going to load out out longer. And we're not going to put a heavy line on them. We're not going to, you know, kind of get any tricks to try to load them close. Because for us, that feel is the most important
1: thing. Gotcha. No, that makes total sense. I, I want to go back to the rod building. I think that rod building class sounds like an awesome resource. So you guys, is that something similar to your rods, right? If somebody orders a rod, it's going to take a while to get it. I mean, how do you get into that class? Is that something where they can go to your website? They call you up?
2: Yeah, on the website, you know, we we just published our twenty twenty dates, so we're we've got dates out through August right now, and and we actually have openings in all of those classes. So uh, if if someone's interested and uh, the dates fit, you know, we're offering pretty much one a month uh, to come out for the week and do it. Um, so definitely something to look into. Uh, but coming back around, you know, it, as a aspirational rod builder, I think uh, one of the things for me is, is in terms of shaping handles is I would get a, you know, a mandrel and start with shaping handles off the rod and just start messing around on the lathe and and mess up and, and uh, play with different shapes and see what happens. And before, you know, it really matters. Um, You know, one of our philosophies is rather than buying preformed handles, pre-shaped handles and sliding them onto the rod. um, You know, Tom had us, drilling out each cork to match the taper of the rod and then gluing each cork onto the rod so it connected with the blank, connected with each other, and then we shape each customer's handle individually. So um, there's a lot more consequence to messing up on a handle once it's been glued to the rod. So I would start with messing up some handles off the rod before having to cut them off.
1: So, yeah, maybe we just take it back really quickly to the process on the actual rod. So before you even get into putting the handle on you know everything there, can you talk about first, you know, just the basics, the, the mandrel. Can you talk about that process and where your blanks, how how that comes together, what a mandrel is just kind of. Yeah, exciting? sure. So if you're
0: not familiar with with how we make uh, graphite and fiberglass blanks, basically um, there's some choices you make when you're making rods. And, and we've alluded to that kind of in the pattern. And so we call the rolls of graphite or fiberglass fabric. And so you take that roll of fabric and you cut it essentially like a sailcloth. So at the butt end, it's wider. Um, And at the tip end, it's narrower. It's essentially tapered like a sail on a ship. Um, And the way you cut that can make a lot of difference in in the way the rod turns out. Uh, Basically, that cloth is then tacked with an iron, essentially, um, onto a mandrel. The mandrel is a long steel tube with a constant rate of taper. Um, And then that that fabric that's wrapped onto the mandrel is then wrapped on the outside with cellophane tape under pressure. Um, And that creates a, a little bit tighter adherence to the mandrel. And then that whole thing is baked in an oven. And that's what sets the resin content in the fabric and makes it stiff. Uh, then it comes out of the oven and then you use a, a pneumatic raw or a mandrel puller that pulls the mandrel out and you're left with the hollow cylinder of the cured resin fabric. And so the choices you make, you choose a lot of things in the fabric. You choose what type of resin and and the, the thread count or the, the fabric area weight that you want for certain things. And then the flag pattern dictates the amount of overlap you're going to have once it's rolled on the mandrel um, and there's things you can do with compounding tapers and, and all different it can be about as complicated as you can imagine so there's different things you can do you can mix materials um, you know you can have a, a different material at certain parts of the rod or over the ferrules and things like that you can reinforce internally where the ferrule points are there's a lot of things you can do to, to change that resulting action you know we're really lucky and that we learned from tom Um, And we have the, the, the benefit of having Tom's patterns that over decades he honed, you know, that that sense of knowing what a number translates to to. Uh, in, a, in a rod flex and feeling of the rod is, is really something I don't know if we totally have yet. That's decades of, of, of casting and prototyping rods to feel, you know, what the difference is in this overlap versus that or or this this taper versus that in the way the rod feels. And so, you know, we're, we're really lucky and, and proud to say that, you know, some of the rods we build are the same rods that Tom Morgan Rodsmith has been building for 25 years. You know, and Tom's philosophy on rods was, Good fishing rods don't become bad fishing rods, um, and that's kind of part of our philosophy. Is we really feel like you know, you buy a really good trout rod, you buy it once and you use it hard for a long time. You know, they they don't roll over. Our model lineup doesn't roll over every three years. You know, we're not going to tell a customer the rod you bought ten or fifteen or even twenty years ago isn't still a really good rod. And we can we're able to do that because we don't make a lot of rods. You know, we're we're not you know making thousands and thousands of rods every year. So that's a we're, we're kind of fortunate to be able to have that philosophy and, and stick to it.
1: And now a quick word from our sponsors. The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has a great fall edition that's out right now. You can find Lucas Stevens, who visits Winston Fly Rods, in the fall edition for an insider look and a rare interview with Ted Leeson. Patrick Wall pays homage to Harry Lemire's tied-in-hand Atlantic salmon flies displayed in the Marguerite Museum. Uh, boots Allen takes us uh, to the pond with a masterclass in stillwater. Dennis Doble travels to Scotland in search of a salmon. Atlantic Salmon, plus uh, deputy uh, editor of the uh, Fly Fishing Time Journal, Henry Hughes, has a mysterious fly fishing story, uh, plus much more. I'd love if you can stop right now, uh, just press pause, uh, and just head over to wetflyswing.com slash FTJ and subscribe uh, to the magazine, and you'll get that uh, that issue delivered right to your uh, your mailbox. That's wetflyswing.com slash FTJ j we're also supported by SoFly gear led by chief apparel guru and team usa youth fly fishing member uh, james carlin who has a clothing line you're definitely going to love SoFly's mission is to produce clothes that look good perform well and can be worn on and off the water plus most importantly are manufactured under rigorously sustainable methods how do they do it bamboo in a single word a fabric that is buttery soft to the touch Uh, Durable, sun-resistant, and highlighted with great artwork. I've been wearing the SoFly hoodie uh, pretty much all year now, and I I just can't take it off whether I'm fishing or hunting. Um, It's pretty amazing, so you got to check it out. It really works great in all conditions. It's light. It's soft. All good. And I just wanted to let you know, uh, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash SoFly. Uh, That's uh, wetflyswing.com slash SoFly. F-L-Y to get started today. If you go to that link and show your support for the podcast, uh, you will assure that we will be able to create more content indefinitely and infinitely. Okay, back to the show. No, that's that's really cool. So, that explains it. Thanks for, you know, clarifying that. So, basically, you, you get these you know, you get the rod, I guess you have a local company that's building, you know, essentially making that. Yeah. we so
0: use a couple of suppliers, we use a couple of suppliers that roll our blanks. Um, we're not at the size where we can have our own blank rolling facility, unfortunately. We'd love it because from a prototyping standpoint, it's nice to just say, hey, let's roll this today and see how it casts. So it's a little more right. lengthy procedure for us. But yeah, we own all the mandrels and the patterns. And so basically we pay somebody to make them uh, based on our specs okay. for the fabric and the resin and the patterns. Yep. And they supply them with us. Or and then, them.
2: Yep. And then from there, you know, basically you and I have talked, you've said, I want a, you know, two piece, eight and a half foot four weight. Uh, and I want the red blank as opposed to the clear blank. So we coat the blanks in house and then we will ferrule it. We use spigot ferrules for all of our ferrules um, and uh, we'll ferrule it to the length and, and the number of pieces that that you're after. And then mm-hmm. we start through the process. we, depending upon if you want up blocking or downlocking hardware, that determines where we glue the cork. Um, and then we, we glue the cork directly onto the blank. Tom thought that that made a difference for the connection from the casting and, and, and the playing of fish, translating down the blank through the handle into your hand by having a really tight connection. Um, we shape it based on your preferences. We start with either a Western cigar or a full-wells, as kind of our stock handles, but people send us drawings and measurements and pictures of favorite handles. So, uh, you know, that's part of that custom process. And then uh, we wrap and, and have our calligrapher come in and, and she's a local here in Bozeman, does a beautiful job writing whatever you'd like us to write on the rod. And then uh, and then we go into coding. And, and uh, coding is another spot as, a, as an aspiring rod builder. I think that, uh, you know, some tips from Tom are pretty helpful.
0: Yeah, and I think so. The process Matt just talked about. There's probably a couple of tips in there too. So I don't know. As a home builder, I'm trying to think of what's feasible. What well, we can give you tips that's yeah. feasible. Feasible. There. Well,
1: what is what is the difference between a a home builder, say somebody that's just got this one rod they're building, they've got you know the basic setup versus what you guys have there? When you're
0: well, buying. I don't think from a technology standpoint it's really that much different. But I can tell you, like when we get blanks in, so we deflect every single blank we get. Because we want to make sure that it meets Tom's standard for the specific line weight, so we deflect tips and butts. what's
1: well, what's the, what's the def- what do you mean by deflect?
0: So deflection is basically when you hand you hang a standard weight on the end of the blank, and it's held static on a board, and we can measure how deeply it bends with that oh, weight gotcha. for a tip or a butt. Now everyone's deflection board is different. You know, a different maker might have different weights; they might have a different length board. You know, so it really is only true to what we use for us. it's like an individual thing a deflection board but we look at each tip and butt and make sure that they bend the way let's say a five weight should bend for us you know for that pattern and if it's too stiff it gets rejected if it's too soft it gets rejected if it's within a certain margin a pretty tight margin then the slightly stiff ones get matched with the slightly stiff butts so the slightly stiff button tips go together and the slightly soft button tips go together and the dead-on button tips go together so we try to create a recipe between the two sections that maintains the the uh, nice progressive action across them. And then we record that for customers. So we know if, you know, John Edwards breaks his tip, we know what his tip that when we do his repair. So we kind of, you know, every step along that way, we try to take every single detail um, and quantify it so that it's not a mystery. If we ever have to repair or rebuild that, then we take those blanks. Very rarely are blanks perfectly straight. So we straighten them. And so you can straighten blanks by applying heat and pressure now we have kind of a, a doohickey or we call them organisms, these tools that Tom invented that we use for that. I don't know if a home builder would be interested in that, but
1: is this different than the um like the spline where you look where you find the spline and, and from that? Different than the
0: spline, yeah. So so straightening for us is is sweeping curves and that may or may not correlate to the spline. The spline's a little different and and Matt can kind of talk to finding the spline and our philosophy on splines, but the spline is basically the area of the maximum overlap. So if you think back to that. All right. Where you overlapped it at one point in the rod, where that that flag ends, is going to be the most material overlap in the rod, and that creates the spline down the length of the blank.
2: I, I don't remember. I'll have to dig it up. I can probably see if I can find it and forward it to you. But there was a great article maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, one of the builders at Thomas and Thomas was talking about this philosophy of finding the spline, and you know the, why I really liked the article was that. There was a lot of consensus on how to find the spline, but almost no consensus on what to do with it once you did find it. So I thought that, <laughs> I, I thought it was great. They talked about, you know, Orbis's approach to using the spline. And some people did it on the back and some on, under the guides and some on the side for accuracy. And it, it's just a really interesting.
1: No, I love that because that's, that's one of those things where I'm right now, just find the spline. to somebody, is, you know, as listed there saying, well, you know, spline is not important nowadays because, you know, the rods are pretty straight with a four piece rod. It's not that big of a deal, but you can, you know, you can hold the tip of the rod at least and roll it and it'll snap and it'll show you where the spline is. But yeah, that's the thing. Where do you put the guides on the bottom or the top of where that spline is? It's kind of funny. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I
2: think there's a lot that goes into that. Everything, you know, we, we like to also talk around the shop about how everything matters and everything from Tom's guide spacing charts. So Tom's philosophy was to use smaller guide sets than probably a lot of the modern rods are. Um, He thought that it kept the line uh, from losing energy by chattering back and forth and and kept it uh, more in line when casting Uh, the spacing between guides, you know, everything matters to how the rod feels. So I think like Joel has said a couple of times, we're really, really lucky that we got um, all of Tom's designs obviously as part of the company. Uh, But as we've, played with prototypes and, and started to do some of our own work, we realized how every little thing from the amount of thread wraps, the amount of coating, the amount, the the weight of the individual guides and the sum of the weight of those guides, it, it all matters. It it, um, it really does. And I, I used to think, you know, people were making that up or nobody can really feel that when it casts, but it, it really does matter.
0: And Tom would say it matters more at the tip than it does at the butt, all those things. The more you do at the tip, it's a right. big long lever arm, you know, and so um, you do as little as possible. He would say that the blanks are perfect, and the more you do to them, it just messes them up.
2: Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you keep. And then, how, how would you determine the spacing? If you had that, say that eight foot four weight, you know, how would you guys determine? I mean, obviously you've built those before, so you could copy what you did before. But how, how would you determine the spacing, or how would somebody? Yeah, I think it? you know.
2: Um, uh, Mike McCoy at Snake Brand Guides has a great chart. So if you buy guides <laughs> or REC, I'm sure has it as well. And it, You know, if you, there are some generic spacings for eight foot yeah. rod as a good starting point, you know, and generally the width between <clears throat> uh, the tip top and the first guide. It's a little bigger between the first guide and the second guide and a little bigger between the second. guide. Right. And, you know, it really matters if you're building a piece rod or a four piece rod, and where you want those guides to fall in relation to, uh, you know, a reinforcing wrap around the ferrule. So sometimes you have to adjust them. But I think back to your your last question about what's different between a home builder's shop and, and our shop. And it's really, we just have a lot of jigs and a lot of purpose built machinery that's used for one step of the build process. And if I was doing this in my home garage, I could achieve a similar outcome, but I'd have to yeah. kind of get creative with some of my different tools. Um, I might not own a lathe, so I might turn a handle on a drill or a drill press or something like that. Um, whereas we have one lathe specifically set up only to turn handles and a second lathe only for ferreling bamboo rods and doing other you know, work in the shop. So that's yeah. where I think we're lucky. For guide spacing, we happen to have some some boards that have the, you know, original markings from when Tom and Jerry designed them. And we lay the blank down <clears> on the board and then just use a, you know, a white grease pencil and go down and make marks where each guide should be.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Going back to the rod. So you guys basically, you know, you're building the rod like you normally you put the handle on. Although you guys mentioned you build the handle, you're not just sliding it over the down the blank and then what's the next step you guys go into do you, do you kind of go to the tip top and then start wrapping the guides yep so i
2: think uh so that yeah, you know, we tip top the rod and there we're looking for straightness between, you know across the ferrules whether it's two piece or four piece um getting everything lined up uh, often it corresponds with the spline but you know we're looking to make sure that that's straight when it fits together um and then as far as wrapping goes you know i don't know as far as tips to wrapping i find that when we do bamboo classes that people who have done a lot of fly tying gravitate naturally to wrapping rods it's it's similar fine motor Mm -hmm. um i don't have a whole lot of magic tricks there other than patience and you know again if you have a tag end or a double wrap even if it's on an ornamental wrap that's taking you a long time to do, you just gotta flick it off with your thumb and and
1: so you wrap that guide and then you you know get your loop of thread and stick it through and pull it through. Does, is, it, you, is that how you tie how do you tie it off so you hide that little, you know, that little nip that you do with the razor blade? This is gonna be really interesting for me to describe on a podcast. I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Easy on uh, video,
2: not on a podcast. Basically I I yeah, use yeah. A, a loop of five X tippet that I've tied into a maybe a three-inch loop and about five wraps out from the end. Now, again, with our level of, of precision, I measure every single wrap with a pair of calipers and that oh, wow. every wrap matches, and I count the number of wraps on everything. So it's either I know it's exactly uh, you know, 750 long, or I know that it's 20 wraps, then three wraps of brass, and 15 yep. more wraps, then three wraps of brass. So I either have counts in my head or, or measurements, and I match the two wraps on the guide using calipers. Um, but I stop about five wraps short of the end, uh, put that loop of, of uh, 5X uh, onto the blank, and then continue to wrap those five wraps so that loop is wrapped underneath. And then when you cut the thread off of the spool, you drop it through that loop and there's a couple of different techniques depending upon if I'm wrapping bamboo or graphite, uh, whether I just snug it up and pop it off or pull it all the way through. And that kind of sometimes depends on tips versus butts or um, if I'm teaching somebody new versus somebody that's done it a bunch. But, yeah, basically you're just burying uh, the end of that thread under four or five wraps.
1: Underneath. And, and why not? And why use the five X versus just using the thread you're wrapping with uh, an extra? You thinner. know the
2: the five X to me is thinner. thinner, but it's also strong enough that I can use a loop of five X, you know, all the way down a rod kind of thing without breaking it. Because um, when yeah. it breaks, you almost always have to redo the wrap. So that that's kind of
1: a pain. Gotcha. Okay.
2: And the other thing <laughs> I, I'd say about a uh, tip to building that we find is. I'm either in the right mood to wrap or I'm not. And if I wrap a rod when I'm not in the right mood, it doesn't look great. You know, so I I think like anything, whether it's sitting down to tie flies or or sitting down to shape the handle, like don't force it. You know, obviously we have to build rods and don't have the luxury of saying this week I don't feel like it. But I try to look at different parts of the day when I'm when I'm feeling like my eyes are good and my hands feel good and I'll jump on and wrap. Uh, But if I'm exhausted
1: or, or feeling impatient, it's not the time to sit and try to do that. That's right. That's right. Are you guys, I'm not sure, I'm not sure your age, but are you guys uh, have uh, glasses and stuff like that? Are you at that level <laughs> yet? Reluctantly.
2: Uh, we're, we're both in our young forties and uh, uh, are fighting the readers. I yeah, and- you know. I know. <laughs>
1: You're not, you're not far away, man. I'm telling you, you got a few years, you're going to be stepping But I, I still, man, I, I, when I put them on, it's just, it's a world of difference, but I still avoid it because I'm like, no, I'm not going there yet. <laughs>
2: this season, I, I, I'm like embarrassed to say I'm that guy now out with those click on,
1: uh, the ones that click
2: together, yep. you know, to tie the knots on my flies. And I, I use them when I'm wrapping rods. We also use, uh, magnifying, uh you know, like the kind of go over your head, uh, the magnifiers uh, quite a bit at at different steps in the process. Mm
1: -hmm. Sure. Yeah.
0: I was just going to say, so after wrapping, you know, we go into coding and my first tip I had for you about coding is I do everything under magnification anymore. Like I, I just, you see the edges so much better. You see the margins so much better. You can assess whether there's, you know, whether it's good or it's bad or there's a bubble or, you know, all those things show up yeah. so much easier when you're using magnification. So we pretty much constantly do that, you know, for two reasons to make sure the quality is really there. And then we also feel pretty good if you can't see it with magnification that you're not going to see it when you're fishing or when you're looking at your rod when you get it or, or something like that. So we use lots and lots of magnification. And, and we, do, oh. we do coating a little different, too. So, you know, we use a, a flexible epoxy resin for our coating, but we do a lot of coats. Um, so I think most production places are doing maybe one or two coats and we typically do, you know, five to seven coats, uh, very thin coats and we sand between coats. So we look for little defects or, uh, bumps from tag end. You
1: sand, you don't use a razor blade to cut off.
0: You know, one of the things we found with razor blades is, um, if you razor blade them, you can actually create a flat defect that can reflect the light. So you'll see. Oh uh, right. You know, so that's a you know it, it may work fine for the home builder. We don't we didn't want that. So if you do use a razor blade, I'd say you need to sand after you use the razor blade. So, oh yeah. You know, in some ways it's easier just to sand. <laughs> and, and,
2: and when we're gotcha. And to be clear, when we're talking about sanding, you know, we're talking about fifteen hundred to two thousand grit. Yeah, very, very fine. Oh right. We're not sitting there with eighty grit. Very,
0: very very fine. <laughs> yep, yep. So um, yes, yeah, so we do lots of coats. And coating for us, oh, yeah. it's kind of like. You know it's done when it's done. And there's a couple of parts of our process that aren't really t- entirely quantifiable. You just kind of know what the look is you're looking for, and, and you can look at it and say this is done and this isn't, and it may have been seven coats, sure. it may have been five coats, and it just kind of depends on the day, and sometimes at the end of the pot, the epoxy is a little thicker, and in the beginning it's thinner, and so there's a lot of things that go into that. We also um, always recommend heating your epoxy a little bit, so we just use a FlexCoat epoxy, but if you can get it to about 100 degrees, it just handles much better. Mix um, mixes better. Works better on the brushes. We use nice brushes, so we don't use disposable brushes. We use nice brushes and clean them because we feel like the, the nicer brushes have better bristles, fewer
1: air bubbles. What kind of a what what would be a nice brush? Oh, like sale brushes. You know, brushes are like five or
0: seven bucks instead of twenty-seven twenty-five cents. Oh, okay. You know, so that gives you an idea. And and different people like different sizes of brushes. We tend to use pretty small brushes because we like to be able to really detail the edges and you know get things really even and flat. And so the idea of the multiple coats is it just gives you a flatter finish. So when you're, boat, you're oh. always battling footballs and, uh, and dumbbells like they want to yeah. turn into a dumbbell. Um, and, and if you don't have a dumbbell, then you get too thick in the middle. It turns into a football. So, you know, you're kind of going back and forth and we always try to create a really flat, flat surface. Um, that doesn't really stand out too much from the rod.
1: Gotcha. And are you guys spinning this to, to dry it or is that yeah, something? That's we are. So,
0: yeah, we chuck it on a, Another difference between a, a home shop and ours might be we just we chuck things on a motor to coat them with the brush and then we yeah. spin them on a drum. Yep. And that just keeps it so that it dries nice and flat and even. You know, if you if you're hang something to dry, yeah. obviously the epoxy is still curing so it sag towards the floor because of gravity. So we rotate them on a drum. Usually, you know, three, four hours, it'll set up pretty good on you. Varnish is a little different with the bamboo rods. So we rotate them a little bit longer. Um, but I think, you know, the coating stuff, like Matt said, if you kind of got to be in the right mood and, and, you know, if you're not in a good mood or you're hurrying or rushing, inevitably you'll touch a wet part or bang it in the wall or, you know, something happens and you're better off to just take a break. And I think a lot of it's just about detail, you know, the magnification and the sanding. And I think the key probably to getting good finishes is the sanding, probably more than the coating. You know, it's how you clean up things and, and move on to the next step which is probably most important. Um <clears throat> And then you get really familiar with epoxy too, just knowing how it behaves and when it's ready and when it's not, when it's done when it's, you know, you kind of get all those things down just by practicing and using it quite a bit.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So, so then wrapping now, you know, I mean, you put the real seat on, you get that all set up, you know, anything else that you guys, you know, do differently that, you know, through the process, I guess you have a a hook uh, keeper up there too, as well. We, We offer a hook keeper.
2: We find, I think as people have gravitated to longer leaders that, a lot of our customers actually don't prefer them because you end up winding the, the leader up to the tip top. So most of our cu- customers actually opt out of those. Um, and then, you know, I, like I, I think back to a lot of finished woodworking where it's easy to get 80 percent of the job done and all the devil is in the sanding and the finish work. And it's similar in rod building. There's a lot for us that, you know, it, it really is at the end steps of the process. Um, we buff those, those, uh, all, all the coats, uh, on a buffing wheel. Uh, we're, we're doing some really fine sanding. We're, you know, dressing up any kind of possible defects. So it, it comes back into why back to your earlier question about scaling up, I, I wouldn't know how to build 200 rods a month. Uh, the way we do it, I, I just don't think it's possible. Uh, at least, at least not for me, and not not for. I don't want to work, you know, year, you know, around the clock, seven days a week here to do that. Um, so I, I just don't think it's possible. Um, so you know, I think it, it's really about how you the fit and finish, and then you know, good example. We had a rod built for a customer the other day, and it wasn't structural. There was just a little air bubble in under the name badge. Um, and we fought it and fought it. And Joel's tried to sand it back and get it done. At the end of the day, we couldn't get the air bubble out. And we told the customer, you know, we're going to build you an entirely new butt. Um, and we're going to, we're going to start over. We'll ship your rod to you so you can go down to Argentina and fish it. Uh, but you'll have a new butt coming in the mail. Uh, and that for us, you know, it's not cheap for us to do that, but it's important that that rod is as close to perfect as possible. And chances are, he would have never seen that air bubble, No. Uh, Probably mind. if I looked at most of my production rods that are down in my basement, they probably all have air bubbles somewhere. but it's just important to us that, that we knew and uh, we're just not gonna not gonna send one out like that.
1: Right. Right. What's the so on the on the real seat, uh, what's a typical type of wood? It sounds like you guys use some different types. Of, what species is the most common? Yeah, Tom was a wood
0: collector. So yeah, one of the things he used to do in the mornings is he'd sit on his computer and bid on <clears throat> blocks of wood blanks. Against, oh, wow. Usually against guys that are building pens or knives because uh, they're similar type blanks for uh, for rod <laughs> seats. But we work with probably about 20 different kinds of wood. Um, we usually start off by saying you like light wood or dark wood. So we have a lot of the traditional maples, you know, like tiger stripes and bird's eye and and, uh, and box elder and things like that. We do a lot of stuff with burl woods, which tends to be more highly figured and has a lot of swirling okay. kind of patterns to them. I think the most popular oh. woods probably for us are Oh gosh, I don't know. And Buena is a pretty well-known, you know, darker burrow wood. Um, we have some kind of less common species like Sapel, which is an African artwood, really beautiful briar. Uh, we've got some really neat kind of spalted stuff now. So spalted means wood that has a fungus in it, which tends to make it have kind of gray streaks or black lines in it. Um, so we've been doing some spalted box elder and some spalted maple burrows that are really beautiful lately, but it just kind of depends. We usually give people a choice of eight real seats. Um, If they express an interest, you know, if they say I want box elder, we'll send them eight box elder seats. If they say I want dark wood, we'll give them, you know, eight different dark wood options. And then they actually pick the real seat that goes on their, uh, on their rod. And so that's something we make in house too. So we buy the burls and, and section them and, and uh, fortify them and then turn them on the lathe and, and slot and mortise them for the real seat hardware. So. Um, that's something we do here, and, and I think it's kind of fun because that's your interface with the rod. And so, some of our customers get really into the idea of you know, having a special handle and a special real seat and you know, a special inscription, and that's kind of you know makes the rod really individual for them.
2: I think one, one thing, though, I, I do want to just circle back to because I, I find myself doing this at fly shows and <clears throat> stuff, or when people come through for a tour of the shop. I spend like ad nauseum. I'm so proud of the you know quality of our work and the fit and finish and you know all of it, but I think one of the things that I come back to is I've it, we could do all that. And then if you went out and strung up the rod and put a line on it and and it didn't cast great, you know, that doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter how much quality you put into the component parts. If it's not a great rod. And I think one of the things I, I, I want to come back to is just to talk about that design, you know, Tom's adherence to a, a rod that had an even rated taper that loaded all the way to the handle. You know, we're seeing more and more, whether it's Winston coming back to the pure sage with the LL that did really well this year at the shows. Um, you know, I think that people are realizing that rods, especially for fishing, fresh water and trout rods specifically got too stiff and, and you lost that connection, lost that feel. And yeah, at the show, you know, you could cast 80, 90 feet and feel like a hero, but you know, Tom's philosophy was that trout fishing is 45 feet away. And if the trout are farther away, then do a better job stalking and getting closer and and then, you know, fish to them. But it's really, I think, important to protect tippet with a soft tip um, and to have a rod that is really accurate and has a really delicate presentation Uh, especially as waters are getting more and more pressured and crowded and fish are getting more and more picky, you know, I I find that I prefer a rod that is really delicate and precise over a cannon because I I just feel like I catch and land, uh, more fish that way.
1: I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think that's exactly right. And do you guys feel with your rods, do you feel a, a flex in, in the actual handle? Yeah. I mean, I,
2: I can tell you the difference on our rods if we build a handle that has 12 cork or 13 cork, making it either a six or a six and a half inch handle, that extra cork is actually changing the point at which the rod is flexing. Uh, and I can feel it be a hair stiffer with a little bit longer handle. Um, and so they're definitely bending all the way down to the handle. Yeah, we talked about having kind of a, an action that
0: has kind of a lively mid or lively butt. So you feel them instead of them having the absence of feel, if that makes sense.
1: Yep. That does. No, and I think you're right, uh, Matt, the point you made. I remember that as things were, it seemed like it was all about, you know, the rod companies were coming out more and more, you know, faster, faster, faster. And then it seemed like everybody stopped here in the last five or 10 years. It was it just kind of thought like, wow, what do we have now? We've got this super stiff, super fast rod. And, like, and I kind of like a soft rod. You know, I think people are starting. I think you're totally right on that.
2: I think one thing, too, that Joel and I both really believe in and Tom believed in is, you know, rolling over different lines you know coming up with different models of rods just to stimulate customers it, it it doesn't feel good you know have people own a rod for 2 years and then be told that that rod doesn't work anymore and they got to buy the newer one and you know his philosophy was build it once and build it really well and make it something you can hand off to your kids not something that you fish for a season or two and then replace and you know it's yeah. an environmental piece around the waste of going through that there's for me, you know, to buy a seven or $800 rod and then two years later sell it quickly on Craigslist so I can buy another seven or $800 rod. It doesn't doesn't feel right. So, you know, we have customers that will come back six or eight years later and say, I have one of your nine foot five weights, you know, did you guys come out with something new? Should I buy something new? And we say, Nope, we're still building the same nine foot five weight. Uh, You know, hope you love it. Um, You know, maybe you'd like a, Eight foot four weight or you know something different, but we're not going to try to resell you a five weight just because we're going to try to make another sale.
1: Because it's the newer, and, and I think that is the Patagonia. I think you guys have noted before that's the, the mentality of Patagonia and and uh, what they do. You know they try to you know even they have repair days. I think up uh, I just saw you know they have days where you take your stuff and they'll repair it for free you know in, instead of buying and creating more stuff and and I you know I have a personal note you know I've talked a little bit about this but I grew up kind of around a fly shop and it was we had a small fly shop it was tiny and you know we didn't do a lot of sales but I remember the pressure was always man. You got to get get the rods out the door because there's a new one coming in next year. And and since we didn't sell a lot, it was always a pressure. I think we missed our mark. We should have connected with uh, with you guys back in that day. <laughs> I think that would have made it easier. Ever, ever, yeah. 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 And we're
2: also trying know. to you know, I think some companies too want you to own two weight through twelve weight of their company. right. And I think back to the, your questions originally about Steelhead. You know, our philosophy isn't we're going to try to be every rod for you, but Take that one time, you know, for single hand trout fishing where you like to throw dry flies or you want that presentation and pick that one rod and have that be your special rod on those days. And then there is a time and a place, you know, when it's blowing 25 30 miles an hour on the Yellowstone that you want, you know, a really powerful five way. And you might not fish our rod that day. Um, so we're not trying to take over your whole
1: quiver. Just be the one really special yeah. one in there. or two. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. well, we're, you guys. Uh, we're about gonna wrap this thing up here before uh, before we jump into a quick little rapid fire round. Do you have any any other notes we missed here on anything you want to cover as far as action or any anything there? No, I think this was great. Yeah,
0: I think we covered okay. everything we had to say <laughs> in an hour. Perfect. A bit more, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> no, I know. No, there's no way to cover an hour. So, uh, well, so I guess we'll start off with that space. So, you know, you guys. It sounds like you haven't. Uh, yet built a rod of now have you guys built a rod on your own or is it you're still using all of tom's old stuff and do you have plans to to eventually build something that's more of your what you, you know you two create so
2: i think for sure that there's two rods both both the seven weight and uh our eight foot four weight were designs that that tom worked on until he passed away but that never got rolled into prototypes so those are two rods that uh, I, where I feel proud that Joel and I have been able to put our stamp on the final product because we launched off of Tom's plans, but still had to go through different iterations in the prototyping and come up with a final rod. So I think we're really proud to develop those. And um, while we're not going to redevelop, you know, an existing model of Tom's, I, I do think that um, you know we've played around with the idea. I had a customer that is really interested in us building a a bamboo trout spay rod, and, and I've been kind of noodling in my head about what that might look like, and so. I think some new designs for us um, uh, are definitely on the horizon, but I don't think they're going to be at the expense of the, the tried and true rods that we have.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So there's no, yeah, like you said, there's no, there's no plan for a trout spay rod anytime in the, in the near future for you guys. No, no, We'll
2: see. Maybe out of bamboo.
0: What's, what's, near, what's near okay. future mean? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah, that's, well, that's a good question. So on the bamboo. So, you know, I would say to be
0: fair, I think the trout spay is an intriguing space for us. Cause it kind of fits, yeah. it's, we see it more and more in Montana and it fits with like kind of our goals of, of, you know, really making rods for trout fishing. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting to us. Yeah.
1: It is. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool. So back on that bamboo. So, you know, let's start with you, Joel, uh, you know, graphite bamboo, you know, or, uh, or fiberglass, what's, what's your go-to, what, what do you like? Well, oh, it's a tough question. I, you know, I think it was
0: really, it was really important to Tom to make all three, you know, even as a small maker, uh, because I think we feel like they all have different places. Um, Depending how we're fishing and and when we're fishing, I would say I think there's really nothing like fishing bamboo um, Because for me when I fish a bamboo rod, I always say I've got a little more swag that day Like I get ready. I already get ready pretty slow as Matt will attest, but I get ready a little slower I kind of feel like, you know, uh, it's a little special um, When I'm fishing them, you know, it's certainly a purpose-driven rod So like Matt said, we're not going to fish them when it's honking 20 on the Yellowstone We're in a boat you know, but if, if we're in a spring creek yeah. and, and it's calm and, and we can see, you know, BWOs coming off the water, I don't think there's much that compares to, to casting and catching fish on bamboo, especially in lighter line weights.
1: That seems like the bamboo, one of the cool things about bamboo is it is that slower, that nice. You know, kind of, and but your rods already your graphite kind of already go that route. Is there a big difference between your graphite and and your? I mean, there
0: is a significant difference. I think that in the in the world of graphite, our rods are slower than most because of that progressive action, and so I think in that world they're very different. But I think you know, bamboo has more of an organic feel to it, and I think it's hard not to it's hard to fish bamboo and not feel kind of a connection to the history of fly fishing you know we all grew up up reading about chalk streams in England and you know all this kind of history to it Um, you know that being said I'd say my second favorite rod is Probably a graphite rod um, because our graphite rods have such a great feel. Our two-piece graphite rods. I just love fishing, um, and they make me feel like I'm pretty much kind of Swiss Army knife because I can I can nymph target nymph to fish. I can dry fly fish. I can fish a wooly boater with them. You know, I can kind of do everything. And I just am, am at the age where I just am not good at carrying multiple rods. So you know, so I just want to have one thing that I can kind of make work pretty well for everything. Um, and so if that's the case, Arion F6 is probably my second favorite rod in graphite.
1: Okay. Okay. Cool. It, and uh, and Matt, I'll ask you. What's your uh, on a different subject? What What's your uh, the music question here for you? Do you have a, a favorite t- type of music band? Anything you like to listen uh, to? I, I think if you
2: were to walk through the shop on any given day, it's it's really up in the air. Sure. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Pandora. <laughs> be, yeah, a little bit of yep. everything. Pandora. From, you know, heavy metal to the Grateful Dead to Radiohead to the Lumineers. I mean, it's really kind yeah. of. Oh, cool. Not the most musical person, but I, I like having some stuff on in the shop while we're working. We also, though, are admittedly huge podcast geeks. We listen to a ton of podcasts while we're uh, working on the rods. Yeah, making rods uh, keeps oh, you nice. up to date on all
1: the podcasts for sure. There you go. So, what's your so the your non fly fishing podcast? Do you have anything you listen to that's a favorite that's not a uh, you know it's not in the fishing? Uh, you know, a little plug
2: because he's a good friend, but uh, Ed Roberson's uh, Mountain and Prairie podcast. Uh, you know, he, he interviews people who in his mind are shaping the modern West and, uh, oh, cool. it's everything from conservation to entrepreneurship
1: and everything in between, but, um, ranching, yeah, yeah, that's been a really cool yeah. podcast to listen to. Cool. And, uh, how, and Joel, I was going to ask you about that too, but one thing that's kind of interesting, you know, because we've never met in person, I actually haven't even seen a photo of you. I was curious, do you know, Oliver White? Have you ever you ever heard him much? Yeah, like yeah, we
0: know him a little bit. Certainly, have seen him and read articles and things like that. I'm not sure my beard compares, but I, I've been Well, I
1: could tell. You, I could tell you this. You sound exactly like oh, him. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, at least from that's the funny thing. It might be just the audio sure. here, but every time when you talk, I'm like, "Yeah, is that Oliver? or Is that? Is that Joel?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm envious of his lifestyle. I wish I was in the, in the Bahamas."
1: <laughs> that's right I know he's got well yeah Well, he's going through I think he's got a rough period with yeah, that whole true. storm I think there. I yeah.
0: actually started corresponding yeah. to him before we bought before we bought this company about some fishing in Kamchatka which is a it's Right? Me. Yeah. yeah he wrote some articles cool. about it but yeah it might be I have a little bit of cold too so I'm probably raspier than usual now oh,
1: oh that's probably what it is alright that's probably what it is cool and uh, is there anything you know as far as I mean obviously you guys have the class which is cool any other books or uh, resources that might be good for rod building specifically I mean I, obviously you guys learn from the best so maybe that's a tough question but anything out there? Well, I, that are, you know, that Matt's might-
0: better about this than me but I, I just I think about learning in general and the internet is such a great resource for it I mean I think if you have questions and you go to YouTube or just go to Google and you look up you can find different philosophies on wrapping rods I mean we all the time and, and like I said Matt is better at it than I am just explore, you know, to try to figure out different ways that people are doing things or different materials they're using or different solutions. Um, And it's really, it's kind of boundless. It seems like it's really up to you. If you want to, you know, be self-taught and and look at it. And and we're lucky, like I said, to have video examples of all these different techniques. I don't know if you'd have to add. Yeah. yeah.
2: I've also found I'm such a visual learner that obviously YouTube is great to watch something, but to me, the rod building community, Uh, is really gracious and and I haven't found any space for ego in it. Uh, So I I guess, you know, we started a group called the Bozeman Rod Builders Guild, which uh, once a month in the winter time and just, you know, have an adult beverage and uh, show off some of the rods we've been building. And uh, I'd say similarly, if you're into building, um, you know, looking on something like the classic fly rod forum or the five fly Rodders forum, but find a local builder and just don't be bashful, you know, give me a yell and say, can I come see what you're doing in your shop? And, and I, I've yet to meet someone who wouldn't give you that time to, to, you know, improve your wrapping or your coding technique and things like
1: that. That's cool. Uh, that's a great tip. Yeah. You probably don't realize that, but there's probably a local builder in probably most, most states or most cities. Right? Oh yeah. yep, yeah, for sure. Cool. All right, you guys. I think we're about there. Any um, uh, you know, in the next uh, six months or so, anything new coming? You want to note uh, either with you guys or the or the company?
2: Not not a whole lot. You know, I think one of the things is uh, Bozeman's obviously a destination, and uh, I think there's this perception that you know, as a fly shop, you know, as a rod building shop, that we're really kind of hands off, but. We really have open door policy. Uh, come for a visit if you're if you're in Montana. Um, we're right off the highway here in Bozeman, and uh, we'll walk you through the shop, show you everything we've been talking about, go out and cast some rods in the front lawn, and uh, uh, we welcome visitors. So we'd we'd love to see anybody who's in the area. Yep.
0: Yep. Okay. We'll Perfect. be uh, we'll be at some of the fly rod or fly fishing shows this spring. So we'll be- It'll be in Denver and New Jersey and Marlborough Mass and in Pleasant, and Pleasant in California. So if you're in one of those locations and listening, come by and see us.
1: Okay, great, great. So and they can find you also online at either uh, I guess Tom rodsmith.com or it's the Trout. What, what's your other site that reaches? Trout do rods? Yeah, just Trout it, Rods. Either you one, know
0: or just pushing Tom Morgan and to Google, you'll find us.
1: That's right. That's right. Okay, guys. Well hey, thanks for coming on and sharing all the uh the information. I mean you know, the Tom Morgan story we just touched on. I think Jerry is probably, I would love to hear more about, you know, her story too and that. So maybe maybe down the line we can keep in touch with you and, and get some more information there. And uh, But yeah, I appreciate you guys coming on and chatting about it. That'd today. be great. Thanks, Dave. All right.
2: Take care. Thanks.
1: So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 161 please share a link to this episode on your favorite social channel. We have grown this show 100% organically over the years, and it is that one share at a time that has allowed us to create this amazing, uh, amazing resource and, and uh, super awesome podcast. So appreciate you sharing that. Uh, just want to thank you again today for stopping by to check out the show. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon. I hope to maybe see you uh, on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.